world has experienced great upheaval. Growing crisis in food security, record heat, floods and droughts, inflation, and a brutal, needless war. From Ukraine to the Middle East, the South China Sea to the continent of Africa, tens of millions of lives are dominated by conflict or the threat of it breaking out. Putin's invasion has been a test for the ages. Test for America, test for the world. Would we stand for the most basic of principles? We stand for sovereignty. We stand for the right of people to live free of tyranny. We stand for the defense of democracy. So, are we entering a new age of war? This is not a dream. In the run-up to the Iraq War, when Tony Blair was standing shoulder to shoulder with George W. Bush, I went on a battlefield awareness course organised by the British Army. They wanted to avoid journalists being killed, injured or captured. The most illuminating part of the course, however, came from a Royal Marines medic. Someone asked him how he would know if a battlefield injury was serious. The medic thought for a moment and said, If it looks bad... It's bad. Apply that piece of Marines' wisdom to diplomacy, war and conflict right now, and it looks bad. So how bad is it really? I'm Gavin Esler, and this is Not a Drill. What we do know is that from the collapse of the Soviet Union through the 1990s until a few years ago, the number of violent conflicts around the world measurably decreased. But by the 2020s, from Myanmar to West Africa to China's ambitions in Taiwan and elsewhere, plus most obviously the trench warfare in Ukraine and the endless battles in the Middle East, war and the potential for conflict has most certainly increased. So what are the dangers and where are the peacemakers? In a moment, we'll hear from the world-renowned Emeritus Professor of War Studies at King's College London, Sir Lawrence Friedman. First, for her assessment, this is not a drill turned to the international relations and conflict specialist Emma Beals, whose most recent article, co-written with Peter Salisbury in Foreign Affairs, touched on the dangers that lie ahead. Emma, in Foreign Affairs, you argue that many of us think... Obviously, the world seems a more dangerous and violent place. How do we know it is? I mean, what's the metric? How can we calculate that? I mean, the most obvious uh, way to look at it is with quantitative data. So a recent study from Uppsala, who, who studied conflict, said that there were active 
complex in 55 states um, in 2022, with the average one lasting eight to 11 years, which is an increase from the 33 conflicts that we saw that were averaging seven years um, a decade ago. We also see that a quarter of the world's population now, two billion people, are living in conflict-affected places. Um, As of a month ago, we have 114 million people forcibly displaced globally, predominantly as a result of of conflict. So we can see just in the numbers that there is a huge amount of conflict and and it's affecting a lot of people. What's gone wrong? I mean... (laughs) Those of us who lived through the 1990s will know it was it was all about a unipolar world and uh, democracy was triumphing all over the place and former dictatorships, including Spain and Portugal and Greece and elsewhere, were turning in a different way. Is that part of it? It's some kind of massive strategic change in the way countries are run. I think it's a combination of things. It certainly is is that in part. So for one part, there's a changing um, nature of conflict. So we're seeing a lot more intrastate conflicts, uh, civil wars rather than interstate conflicts, but those are internationalized. Um, so not only do you have a changing nature of warfare where it's easier for, for local groups to launch sort of asymmetrical warfare through you know new technology and proliferation of, of arms and so forth, but you also have um, international players, including sort of middle powers, uh, getting involved in those conflicts, which makes them harder to resolve, not just because civil wars or intrastate conflicts are hard to resolve in the first place, but when you sometimes have conflicting uh, interests, not just of the conflict parties, but of their sponsors and the international groups that are involved as well, sometimes that really makes traditional mediation uh, even more difficult than it than it already was. You do also have a vastly changing geopolitical dynamic, as you said, um, moving from kind of a unipolar world to a more multipolar world, a, a geopolitical competition. We can we can call it fragmentation, call it whatever you like, but you have the UN Security Council that is effectively frozen and that's kind of the primary conduit for, for peace and security. That's who helps to sort of dispatch peacekeeping forces or negotiators and, and those political transitions that you might see. You also have on top of that a lack of political attention from a lot of the actors who were initially really interested in trying to to make peace. So they're distracted, whether it's by the war in Ukraine or, you know, a pivot to China, as well as domestic issues. But what you see is is those actors not putting the same amount of of political capital or diplomatic attention and leverage into actually solving uh, those conflicts. Let, let's let's unpick some of those those things because that's a, that's quite a list, isn't it, of things that yeah. I suppose have gone wrong. Um, one of the things I noticed is that you wrote that from essentially from 1990 to 2007, number of conflicts seemed to decrease from 2010, it increased. Is that because, as we know from about 2008, there were real economic problems that affected particularly the big Western powers, but also the rest of the world? And therefore, naturally, people have turned to internal matters and are less concerned with foreign affairs. And by internal matters, I may mean internal disputes, which led to rows and eventually war. Well, I think that is a huge 
part of it. So sort of following 2008, you really did have this turn towards domestic politics um, and domestic concerns. So you had the Obama administration coming in with a huge you know, amount of, of domestic issues to start worrying about. And you saw kind of the beginning of a period of American isolationism. You then had, you know, the legacy of, of the period of cooperation might have been something like responsibility to protect. But then you had the perception in 2011 from a lot of the world that the, the Western powers used that as a way to overreach in, in Libya. And so you kind of saw that um, period of cooperation begin to come undone there. Then you kind of saw this rise of impunity with the chemical weapons attacks in Syria, where there was a red line that was crossed, but there were no consequences for that red line being crossed, followed very quickly by the invasion of, of Ukraine. Remember the, the 2022 invasion of Ukraine wasn't the first one. And again, there were there was a limited amount of consequences, I think, for that, quickly followed by a refugee wave across Europe, which led to, you know, the rise of the right. We had Brexit, we then had Trump. And so you just had this endless kind of parade of, of both international issues, but also domestic ones that really pulled the attention of, of a lot of the countries that were primarily really interested in pursuing multilateralism and, and funding and supporting these kind of peace initiatives. But you also had this rise of impunity, right? And so I think that that has also led up to this um, and has, you know, really been a part of, of where we got ourselves to at the beginning of 2022, when of course there was the invasion of Ukraine. And then that really set off a, another chain of events that have really reshaped the global order as well. On that point, I wondered whether the United States, from Barack Obama through actually to Biden pulling out of Afghanistan, really has changed as a and become much more of an isolationist power, which is part of its American history. But Ukraine has shocked it back, or at least shocked the Biden administration, maybe not the Trump administration, into we're very, very uh, worried about this. So uh, do, you, do you see a potential for a change back to more interventionism from the United States, with which under Biden certainly drew back? Well, I think the response to Ukraine saw an element of that, right? So there's been a huge amount of, of framing of the sort of coalition supporting Ukraine as being about um, upholding the international order, reasserting international norms, you know, not really tackling the why they were degraded in the first place, but really trying to reassert that those are important things to uphold and that it is important to be active in the world um, in order to uphold them. But I think alongside that, you have had a continued reluctance to get involved in other issues. So when you look at the other conflicts and the other sort of uh, international files that have been going on, there still is a reluctance to get too heavily involved in those. And so you do have um, a sort of a selective approach to uh, international engagement, which I think is is a little bit worrying because, of course, things are interrelated and it's not just about Ukraine. And, and, and it does help to also fuel some of these anxieties, I think, um, from the global majority, the global south, you know, whichever way you wish to refer to it, that there is a sort of a, a favoritism to the way that some of the Western actors view um, who should benefit from multilateralism um, and when and where they will get involved in order to create peace or to reassert um, international laws and norms. Where is the UN in this? Because I know the Security Council has been written off before and so on, but it does seem to be particularly paralysed, perhaps because of Russia, but also because of superpower rivalry, and perhaps because Britain in particular is diminished on the world stage 
post-Brexit and is less important both to Europeans and to our American allies? Right. So the UN, I think, you know, the problems start at the Security Council, obviously, um, and that has become a more and more challenging uh, place. And that sort of began or didn't begin, but uh, really became more difficult, I think, you know, through the course of the Syrian conflict in particular. There were a lot of uh, very contentious kind of discussions about that, a lot of vetoes used on resolutions and and not a lot of um, affirmative action in terms of actually resolving the conflict or or holding perpetrators uh, responsible. And, you know, that really created a lot of tensions. Um, And then, of course, there was two rounds of Ukraine. And after the 2022 invasion, you know, that really sort of brought the um, Security Council to a bit of a standstill. I mean, initially, or, or certainly at times, there has been a desire by some of those parties to um, separate Ukraine um, in some ways and not necessarily have it bleed over into every single file and, and have some limited amount of cooperation. But we saw that that sort of has has really ended in, in recent months with, you know, the cancellation of the cross-border resolution in Syria, the end of the Black Sea uh, grain deal. And there just hasn't been a lot of cooperation, even on things where there had been some degree of of ability to move things forward in in the council. And so that's kind of in a bit of a quagmire. And then you have people sort of trying to litigate, um, you know, through the the General Assembly by uh, taking resolutions and and taking sort of almost popularity contest on on different issues um, through there, because of course it is is not binding in the way that the Security uh, Council is and then you have you know the functionaries of the the United Nations who are the the Secretary General and the agencies and programs and so forth. Some of whom are busy getting on with the the, the work of of providing humanitarian assistance or diligently trying to conduct the peace process that they've been asked to do. But for the most part, they're hemmed in by the degree to which states not just through the UN, but the states they're trying to deal with, will uphold international law, right? Um, you know, if, if the peacekeepers are asked to be withdrawn, like we saw in Mali, there's really not much that the UN can sort of do to to push back. So in a lot of ways, they're trying their best um, to keep, you know, picking up the pieces of a lot of this conflict, but they're not able as an institution to assert themselves actually without the cooperation of, of these great powers. As the Marines medic would say, the prospects for world peace for now do look bad. So they are presumably bad. But they could become worse, especially if the United States under Donald Trump pursues a less enthusiastic role within NATO. Yet maybe from a historical perspective, perhaps it is the relative peace of the 1990s up to a decade ago that was the exception. Conflict may be the norm. Sir Lawrence Friedman is Emeritus Professor of War Studies at King's College London. His most recent book is Command, The Politics of Military Operations from Korea to Ukraine, which explains the at times difficult relationships between military commanders and their political leaders. Could we begin with an obvious observation, which is, it seems like the world is a more dangerous place than it was at least a decade ago. Now, is that just because we've got a war in Ukraine at the same time as what's going on in Israel and Gaza, or is there a lot more going on which we should actually think about? I think the world always seems like a dangerous place. 
there were periods, for example, in the 1990s when it seemed like, especially in the earlier part of that decade, sort of common sense had broken out, the Cold War had ended, uh, apartheid was over, there was the Oslo Peace Accords. Um, and so it seemed, I think at that time, much more positive than, than globalization and all of that. But then we had the, the wars in the former Yugoslavia, um, Rwanda. So things always happen. Uh, the issue that uh, it comes down to is whether we think this is sort of such a mega crisis that, that it becomes one that we really can't deal with. So not just that terrible things are happening in particular parts of the world, but so, somehow it all comes together and it becomes sort of a civilizational threatening event. Uh, and I don't think we're quite there yet. <laughs> but that's not something you would rule out, I, I suspect. Well, I, you know, as long as nuclear weapons are around, that then there are issues. Uh, and it doesn't do any harm for people to be reminded now and again of the extent to which uh, we do depend on continuing acts of caution and restraint by people who, in many other respects, are not cautious and restrained. And then, of course, we do have, I think, what is a difference from uh, past periods is things like climate change and so on, because we're getting more extreme events which will by themselves not necessarily prompt conflict but, but are, are uh, add to levels of anxiety and do demand forms of international action that are not necessarily always forthcoming. So I think climate change does add a slightly different dimension to it as well. Can I take you back to the 1990s when the Soviet Union collapsed and so on? Americans talked about the unipolar world. Uh, I remember Senate, Senator John McCain quipping to me that America did not want to be the world policeman, but didn't want anybody else to be doing that in that role. Has that all gone now? The idea of a Pax Americana, uh, the unipolar world, that has gone, hasn't it? It has. In that it, I mean, whether it was ever a unipolar world, we, we can argue about, but it certainly isn't one now that there are a number of power blocks in the world. Uh, the obvious issue is US and China, but you have India as an increasingly important power. And lots of countries, whether the Saudis, South Africans, Indonesians, can pack a punch and have to be taken seriously and have their influence. But nobody really can compare still with America because not only has it remained remarkably economically powerful, but nobody else can match its network of alliances and partnerships and relationships, and nobody ever will. I, I don't, so if, if the US opted out, nobody would be able to take its place. I think anybody would want to because of the obligations that would be entailed. So although it's not unipolar in the way that that was talked about in the early 90s, it's still the phrase that Madeleine Albright used about the US being the indispensable power. Well, it's maybe not indispensable, but if it was dispensed with, there's nothing else. Can we look at a couple of specific conflicts? I mean, the one that obviously has been going on for quite some time and shows no sign of ending is uh, Putin and his ambitions in Ukraine. Can Putin win? What would winning be like or what would peace be like? Or could, can you, Ukraine win? So this is something I've been worrying about because I think it's a frustrating time for Ukraine and those of who supported Ukraine, and Ukraine isn't able to get back as quickly as it would have liked occupied territory. Does that mean Putin is winning? No, I don't think it does. 
and I, I think this is really quite an important argument at the, at the moment. I mean, I became pessimistic about the war in sort of September, October last year when Putin doubled down, uh, not only mobilizing more of Russian society, putting the country more on a war footing, uh, and trying to annex four more provinces of Ukraine. And that just seemed to me to be a recipe for a long war because the he now would have to back down even more than he would have done if he'd looked for a, a quick exit uh, last autumn. Um, if the war stopped tomorrow, say, with the ceasefire, Putin would not at all be satisfied. And with a rump Ukraine that is still substantial and would get closer and closer to the West. So I don't think without a subjugated Ukraine, that is without a friendly government or compliant government in Kyiv, I can't see how anything is going to look particularly like winning to Putin. Now, that doesn't mean to say he couldn't cut his losses and withdraw. But then, of course, there is a reckoning about what's all this been about, and why have so many lives been lost, which is why I think he, he's doubled down. I said that the Ukraine crisis has been going on for a long time. Of course, <laughs> Israel and the Palestinians uh, has been going on for even longer. Uh, I mean, what? What possible resolution can there be in this? Uh, there presumably could be a short-term peace of some sort. But at some point, someone has got to decide what happens in Gaza, whether it can continue, whether a two-state solution is possible or not. We've talked about this for almost generations. So how, how what do you think will happen next? Is it possible to even predict it's very difficult to predict, and one thing I've learned was they say it's it's an easy thing to do as long as you stay away from the future. Um, I, I think with Gaza, you've got a humanitarian crisis that remains urgent and will get worse, uh, even if there's no more fighting. I don't think you can see Israel governing Gaza. It can't. And Hamas, I'm not sure, can um, do it anymore. I think it's beyond their capabilities to manage the reconstruction. And why, and why would you give money to an organization that then squanders it on, on rockets and, um, and tunnels um, that just lead to more strife for the, for, for the people? And I, and I don't think that's um, purely a Western view. I think it, it, it's quite a widespread view in the Arab world, however cross they are with the Israelis. So you've got a situation where neither Hamas nor Israel can run Gaza, where if you want a wider peace process, the Netanyahu government is clearly not a credible interlocutor. Netanyahu himself is not likely to last much longer in power. The Palestinian authority is weak and ineffectual. So my view is that you have to internationalize, looking at how you recover and reconstruct uh, and how you administer recovery and reconstruction, how you provide security to Palestinians, provide security to Israelis. Now, you know, I think these sort of ideas have been around really from 7th of October, uh, but there's not a lot of enthusiasm for this. Uh, I think some people, including the Biden administration, see the logic, but you know that's different from taking up the, the long-term commitment. I don't think money is particularly the issue, but it is one of confidence and governance and risk-taking. Um, I just think if you don't, then you're going to get a continuation of the humanitarian distress. 
and uh, anarchy, potentially. You, you know, you've got a lot of displaced people who've got to get home and have got to be looked after. So I still think that we, we'll end up with the, the internationalised approach that, that I'm describing. I can't see any other way forward. But as always with the Middle East, you, it, it's often easier to envisage the solution um, until you work out how to get there. Could I pick up that point and maybe move on to leadership? Starting again with Israel, if Netanyahu's on borrowed time, is there a Yitzhak Rabin in the wings? You know, General Rabin was able, through gritted teeth, to be a peacemaker, and he was assassinated by an extremist within Israel. Uh, it's a very hard road for any Israeli leader, is it not, to try to do this? Yes. I mean, it was, it was a very toxic time for which Netanyahu himself bear some responsibility. And it was a shocking event, which many of us remember well. Rabin, of course, is not, you know, was seen as no dub beforehand. Um, he'd taken quite a hard line in the first intifada, which was largely non-violent. But he realised that uh, there was no security uh, by continuing to oppress Palestinians. Oddly, so did Sharon, uh, who had been far more hard line than Rabin had ever been and was one of the founders of the Likud party, and he was the one who withdrew from Gaza. Now, he withdrew in, in not a great way by not doing it via a proper negotiation. And if he hadn't gone into a coma, it's an interesting question of what he might have done with the West Bank, which is still the most difficult set of questions connected with the Palestinian. So a responsible Israeli leader soon comes to the conclusion that you need a political strategy. So if Netanyahu goes, Benny Gantz is the most likely to take over. He's currently sort of joined the war cabinet from opposition, former head of the Israeli Defense Forces. He's no particular dove, but he's not a crazy hawk either. And at the moment, I think the polls would show him sort of walking an election and possibly beating an Israeli government with a decent majority. One of the many problems of Israel is that it's very hard to have stable government there. It's, it's always complex of coalitions. So that's also part of the problem. When we turn to Putin's leadership, um, you know, one of the obvious things about him is he was a spy. He was in the KGB, a colonel in the KGB. He surrounded himself with a lot of people in the FSB, the successors. There is great suspicion, everybody uh, talks about this, between the FSB and the military. And yeah. you could say that this military adventure in Ukraine, however it's been done, has not been done very well. If a huge, no. great power like you, like Russia cannot do better than this, there is something fundamentally rotten there in the system which Putin or his successor may have to sort out. He's not a military commander. He is a spy, as you say. Um, and I think you know, spies, were, the FSB was intended to play quite a big role uh, at the start of the invasion by... Um, getting at Zelensky uh, by helping to take over Kiev. I think Putin always envisaged a combination of internal subversion of Ukraine with the external aggression that came from his troops. Could I, I tell you something that I was told by um, a British person who is very familiar with some of the inner workings in Moscow? And he told me that one of Putin's great disappointments would he, was that he had sent a lot of FSB people with a lot of cash to bribe a lot of people in Ukraine. 
and the cash all disappeared. And there has been a minor purge within the FSB of some of these people because they nicked the money. And the idea of a very corrupt regime being being undermined by corruption struck me as quite amusing. Now, I have no way of checking this. but uh, uh, It's known that the FSB have that sort of role. Uh, clearly, they failed, at least in Kiev. You know, it's hardly surprising that if you give these characters money in a system where nobody ever likes to report failure. Um, so they're you know, all reporting back that the money has been well spent and everybody knows what to do when the day comes, you know, often presumably assuming that the day would never come because why would you do such a thing? So, yes, I think uh, I, I think that did happen. Um, and, you know, I think Putin, because he's a spy, lives in a world which can be manufactured, where, where if you say the opposite of the of the truth, then somehow you can get people to believe it, and sometimes you can. But maybe it was also COVID, but, but he obviously had spent a lot of time brooding on Ukraine, wrote this strange essay, long essay, in the summer of 21, which since made the case why Ukraine isn't a proper country, why should link is with is with Russia proper. So he acted on the basis of a flawed image of Ukraine that led him into trouble. And because he's an autocrat and has been around for a long time and controls all the levers of power, he's able to keep this going. And it is hard to see how it stops while while he's still there. But I think there's a danger of especially with autocratic regimes, they're often more brittle than you assume, which we discovered at the end of the Cold War, and we've, and we've seen in, a, in other occasions. But it just always gets you by surprise because we don't have good visibility of what what's going on in Moscow. Where does that leave uh, what we used to call the West? And particularly, Biden uh, withdrew from Afghanistan he may be succeeded by Donald Trump, whose relationship with NATO is unclear, but he doesn't seem to be a great fan. And we had Ben Wallace, the British Defence Secretary, former British Defence Secretary, saying that given that we're reducing our army to about 72,000, it's fine for tootling around at home, was his phrase, but uh, doesn't seem to be great for force projection. So in other words, are we looking forward to perhaps a few years of considerable weakness and perhaps difficulties for NATO itself, despite the expansion with Finland and so on? Well, I think we have to be careful with these arguments. Um, The Biden administration has not done badly. It's held the NATO together. We can overdo the gloom on the ability of Biden to get the next tranche of support for Ukraine through Congress. Um, The new speaker seems more supportive than people thought he would be. Um, the EU is going through its normal gyrations with Hungary holding things up. But, it, but again, I mean, Germany's just announced a large package of support. So I think we can overdo that. And who knows about Trump? I mean, you, it, it's possible that he'll, obviously it's a non-negligible possibility that he will become president again, but it's also a possibility that he won't. So... Again, I think there's a danger of overdoing the gloom on these things. If you look at NATO as a whole, Russia is a, is a, is a tiny fraction economically, um, and actually militarily. Now, we know all the reasons why the whole is less than the sum of the individual parts, but Russian kit has not performed particularly well 
in Ukraine. Um, you know, anybody who's been who's buying their air defences from from Russia, you know, maybe having second thoughts. So I think that when this is over, the Russian military will be quite traumatised by the experience, especially if they haven't actually managed to do the job in, in Ukraine that Putin wants. So I think with Trump, the obvious risk factor, the West isn't in that bad a situation. When you look at the others, you know, China is in quite a difficult situation now. The economy is going backwards. It's uh, the real estate sector, the debt, the demographics, uh, the COVID experience, the authoritarianism. Um, it's not great. You know, and yet the US has actually been powering ahead economically. So I, I, I think we, we need to keep things in perspective and not get too too gloomy uh, uh, about where we are. Well, a note of optimism to close from Sir Lawrence. But it's still hard to shake those numbers we heard at the start of the show with 55 active conflicts right now. So how worried should we be? Here's Emma Beals again. Well, obviously, we wrote the piece because we're really very worried about this this trajectory, because I think that it's not just the proliferation of conflict, it's the consequences of this, right? So one of the solutions or quote unquote solutions to this um, inability to resolve conflict has been this idea that you can just de-escalate conflicts, that you can create negative peace and that that in and of itself is good enough. Um, but what we've been seeing in the last sort of year or two is that that is, is not correct. Um, so if you look at, at Sudan or, or you look at what's happening in the Middle East right now, um, you know, there's a number of conflicts where people thought that they could sort of manage them, um, but they were not effectively managed and we're, we're back to sort of all-out conflict. If you look at the way that this impacts, you know, humanitarian assistance, the number of people who are now dependent on humanitarian aid is growing every day. And if you don't resolve conflicts and you don't move people forward into, you know, a peaceful situation where you can actually move to development or transitional justice or, or returning people to their homes, then actually they stay dependent on aid and you're managing conflicts through humanitarian assistance. So you have budgets that are growing. There isn't enough money to um, pay for all of, all of that humanitarian aid. And then you look at also the impact of climate change, for example, we know that most of the countries that are most affected by climate change are already conflict, you know, fragile and conflict-affected states. And with COPs at a 28 coming up, when you look at climate financing, there's a real challenge around climate financing and conflict, you know, fragile and conflict-affected states because of the lack of, of governance and, and government capacity and so on. So those states are then not able to adapt. And so like we saw with Libya, the people who have been living in these conflicts and, you know, the consequences of negative peace are then inordinately impacted by the impacts of climate change, because we also cannot do anything for them in that circumstance. So there really is just this sort of run-on effect of this current trajectory that I think is is genuinely really very worrying. And just, just a final thought then. Um, I got from the Foreign Affairs um, article and also from our conversation today, um, uh, one sense of of hope, which is that 
every single one of the big problems, uh, international peace, uh, migration, uh, climate change, and so on, demand an international solution because no nation can fix them themselves. And then a sense of also despair, because we all know that. Everybody around the world knows it. But that we are building walls. There may be an, you know, a, a new impetus to build a wall between the United States and Mexico. What do we do about migrants coming into Greece and, uh, and, and elsewhere? So, do, do you see that? That is the unresolved conflict of our time, really, that we know what the problem is, we know we have to cooperate, but we won't for political reasons. I think there's one way of looking at it that is is very much that. You know, we've we've got ourselves into a, this this place by continuing with business as usual. Um, and, you know, a whole host of factors have built up around that. And I think that we are getting to a place where we can sort of see that this is perhaps an unsustainable pathway. And whilst there isn't necessarily a very obvious solution to, you know, um, the quagmire at the top of the Security Council or to the challenges uh, of, of geopolitical competition among great powers, there are some opportunities in the current moment. And I think that, you know, obviously the fact that it is unsustainable and, and you're hearing more and more conversations going on at the moment about that fact, right? That it's it's suddenly feeling so overwhelming that people are actually acknowledging it, which of course is, is the first step. And then you have some opportunities, I think, um, inherent to that, which is, you know, the rise of, of middle powers um, and other states who have influence. You're seeing that play out in the Middle East at the moment, you know, and sometimes that's negative. Countries are getting involved in other conflicts for for nefarious reasons, but you're also seeing people try to take leadership roles to move forward issues that are important um, to them. And I hopefully we'll see a bit more of that cooperation and and, an exertion of of, um, positive influence from from middle powers, but also a broader coalition of of people involved in trying to find solutions, whether it's civil society, whether it's the private sector, whether it's, it it doesn't really matter who it is, you know, people I I feel like um, are are going to be looking at the current situation and thinking, well, if if that way of doing things isn't working, what more could we be doing? Who else could be involved? How could we actually try to find a way forward that isn't simply just um, looking for a magical solution from, from the same set of circumstances that got us here? The United Nations is often described as the last best hope for humankind. Currently, there are 12 UN peacekeeping operations led by the Department of Peace Operations, ranging from Kashmir and Cyprus to Mali and the Congo. But all of these require a degree of agreement between the big powers within the Security Council, something lacking in many other conflicts, including those in Ukraine and Gaza. Perhaps the death of one of the world's most notable diplomats, Henry Kissinger, is a time to recall some of his many insights about democracy, diplomacy and danger. No foreign policy, Kissinger once said, no matter how ingenious, has any chance of success if it is born in the minds of a few and carried in the hearts of none. But perhaps more prophetically, he also quipped, there cannot be a crisis next week. My schedule is already full. I'm Gavin Esler. This is not a drill.
This is Not A Drill was written and presented by Gavin Esler and produced by me, Robin Lieber. Our music's by Paul Hartnell, art by Jim Parrott, and social media by Jess Harpin. Group editor is Andrew Harrison, executive producer Martin Boytosh, and This Is Not A Drill is a Podmasters production.